This episode is dedicated to Alan Barnes, Ulysses Woods, Jonathan Johnson, and John Silva for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw podcast and project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you want to support the work that we do, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Share these episodes, follow us on social media. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe. And if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses, such as classic fight commentary, transcripts of interviews, building a liberation martial arts online curriculum, and most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at co-fi.com slash southpawpod. We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, you're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you. This is Sam. This is Zach. And this is Fight Study. Today we're here to discuss UFC 262 with the wrestling coach for leftist Twitter, Zach Goldrosen. Hi, Zach. Hey, Sam. Zach, can you tell us a bit about yourself? So I'm um, from a little suburban town called Marlboro, New Jersey. Um, started wrestling uh, when I was 10. I kind of followed my dad and my brother into it. Wrestled for, um, for Marlboro High School and... Um, Qualified for the region tournament twice. Then I went off to college. I wrestled for uh, uh, for Muhlenberg College. Um, it's a small liberal arts school about 20 minutes away from Lehigh University. Wrestled there, um, coached for a year while I was um, finishing up my degree as a uh, fifth-year senior. Then um, took a shot at a little bit of freestyle in Greco after college. Um, I placed fourth in the what's called the Maccabee Games Trials, the Maccabee Games. Uh, it's an international competition for Jewish athletes. And I uh, bounced around a couple coaching jobs. I uh, coached the uh, youth club scene for a bit, um, coached at New Brunswick Middle School for a year, and now I'm an assistant coach back at Marlboro High School. And how did you get into MMA? One of my friends from school uh, who knew I was wrestling said, hey, Zach, got to check this out so i uh watched a few videos on youtube bought ufc undisputed 2009 and from there i got into it my first pay-per-view was i think 101 that was the one with anderson silva forrest griffin right yeah that was the one with anderson silva forrest griffin pretty easy to be hooked on the sport after watching something like that and then how did you end up tweeting about mma and uh getting involved with even some friends in MMA media. Uh, kind of a long uh, 
story, I'll sum it up as best I can. Uh, around 2017, I came into, was when I really started getting involved with wrestling Twitter. I ended up coming into contact with, um, with Seth Patera. So then I uh, became friends with him and then through him started seeing um, Ed's breakdowns about uh, wrestling and MMA. Ed Gallo. Yeah. Yeah, Ed Gallo. And then wrestling and MMA, that's sort of right up my wheelhouse. So I started following Ed and then just uh, replying to his tweets, sharing my thoughts. And then from there, um, got in contact with a, a few other analysts. And I appeared on Ed's podcast, and here I am. <laughs> <laughs> and so from wrestling Twitter, you got into MMA Twitter, and now you're more on like good politics MMA Twitter. Took me a while to find the good politics part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, a lot of it kind of came into being, I think, especially after George Floyd. I think people were just kind of shocked at some of the people they knew and their takes. And especially about COVID and people's takes about that. And then we all kind of congregate around each other. Yeah. So let's talk about UFC 262. And I know a lot of the listeners are excited because they follow you on Twitter anyway. So UFC 262 was the second show in front of a live US audience ever since the UFC declared the pandemic was over. <laughs> the UFC declaring that before anybody else was declaring that, right? The only states willing to oblige the UFC right now are states like Florida and Texas. The only people willing to go to packed arenas right now are probably the most far right of an already right-wing UFC fan base, which made it really easy to predict who would get cheered and who would get booed. There were the USA-USA chants for nearly every fight, which was confusing, especially when you had two Americans and then it was clear who they were deciding was American and who they weren't. Yeah. But what was most jarring was during the early prelims and prelims, when no one was in the arena yet, the UFC used what appeared to be fake crowd noise. This is something that WWE also does to not only make events seem bigger than they are, but to also control the narrative of who gets cheered and who gets booed. So now I wonder how much of the crowd reaction is manufactured or at least starts manufactured and then becomes real. But in spite of all that, and in spite of the typical racist fighters and fans and weird dystopian B-movie post-fight speeches, we had some fun fights. In the main event, Charles Oliveira defeated Michael Chandler for the vacant UFC lightweight title, which was vacated by Habib Magomedov. I asked this question to Jason Sargas for our preview episode, but let me ask you the same question. Do you think if Nurmagomedov was around, that either of these fighters could have dethroned him? Or is there anybody in the UFC who not could, but would dethrone him? Because everybody's capable of beating anybody, but that doesn't mean they will beat him, right? What are your thoughts? Not really sure there's anyone currently in the UFC who, who would beat him. I mean, yet there's guys who can wrestle there's and whatnot, but... I mean, just on another level, man. I mean, I mean, even if you don't stop his first takedown attempt, he chain wrestles. He keep he keeps looking, and he eventually finds it, even if it's not right away. That's something that's really hard to deal with, and a lot of fighters aren't prepared for. I think for a lot of fans who aren't 
wrestling experts, they look at Habib and they look at how he can dominate people on the ground, but his takedowns don't look as clean or as pretty as, let's say, somebody like George St. Pierre. So I think a lot of people assumed it must not be that good and it's only a matter of time before people start stuffing in and whatever. Because he doesn't really get you with that blast double or doesn't get you on that first attempt. So what are we missing here? Why can't we just see how good he is right off the bat? One of the things that I was told my freshman year of college, and this is a big thing that I think a lot of college freshmen have to learn transitioning from high school to college wrestling. A lot of the time, you're not going to score with score the takedown with the first shot you take. It's about chaining together multiple attacks and keeping good position as you're transitioning from attack to attack to attack. And Habib will end up putting you in a position where you can either do nothing and get taken down or any option that you have from there would still lead to you getting taken down. He kind of puts you in an, in an unwinnable position. What's his wrestling defense or as far as takedown defense like for the most part it um watching habib film it seems like his takedown defense is largely his reputation and struggling to think of an example of a recent example of somebody making an honest effort to take him down and he's just got he's just so well, highly regarded as a wrestler it feels like people don't even want to go there with him now let's go back to the main event where Doe Bronx defeated Chandler by TKO 19 seconds into round two. But at the end of round one, it was Oliveira who nearly got finished by Chandler. What's funny is that Chandler came in with all the bootstrap, start from the bottom, see you at the top, talk. But the nickname Doe Bronx means of the favelas. So his name is Charles of the favelas. And he's always giving back to the favelas. If you don't know what favelas are, they're extremely poor settlements in Brazil intended to keep the poor away from everyone else. It is by far the most meaningful and bottom-up nickname in all of MMA. I know you have a lot of thoughts about Do Bronx, so tell me about Oliveira and what you thought of his performance and if he lived up to your expectations. He actually maybe exceeded my expectations a little bit. Um, I, I told you privately, I think his wrestling is underappreciated. It, Something I pretty much never hear people talking. I mean, people regard his grappling pretty highly, but they, when people talk about Oliveira's grappling, they're usually talking about his ground game, which, of course, it's excellent. But just as important is how he's getting to the ground. Where, yeah, he's um, defensively he's he can threaten the guillotine, but offensively, the shot itself mechanically isn't great but he sets it up well, so which makes the shot itself not as important. Uh, a good setup makes the finish a lot easier. Why is that? Uh, is it, it just puts you in much better position. I mean, maybe not so much in MMA because it, the fight takes place at a, at a completely different distance usually, but in pure wrestling, it's really not that hard to get to someone's leg, even if they're a lot better than you, but what kind of position are you in when you have their legs? Like, and I see this mistake a lot at the high school level and even sometimes in certain positions in MMA where somebody thinks just because the leg is close enough to touch their hand, they think that the leg is there for them to take when that's not always the case. Because I think you're right. A lot of casual viewers see like, oh, they're touching their legs. They have their hands around the legs. 
why can't they finish this takedown? And even in UFC commentary, if let's say DC or Dominic Cruz aren't around, the commentating team might say something along those lines as well. Why couldn't they finish that takedown? They had their hands around the legs. So what else is happening where having your hands around the legs isn't enough? Generally speaking, and sometimes there can be exceptions to this, a uh, good body position on a shot generally means your head's up, your hips are in, and that way you're, you're in better position to drive with your legs, turn a corner if you need. But a lot of times if you're just reaching out for the leg because you think it's close enough, you usually end up putting your head down, putting your butt way up in the air. You're a lot slower in there. You're a lot weaker in there. Um, the defensive wrestler, if they're active with their hips, active with their hands, then it's going to be a really hard finish if your head's in the mat and your butt's up in the air. So just because they can touch the legs does not mean they're in good position. Yeah, actually, it, it almost sounds counterintuitive, but sometimes I will, in a match, literally yell, let go of the leg. There's nothing there. I remember this when I wrestled in high school and also when I did wrestling, you know, a lot of BJJ schools and a lot of MMA schools also have just wrestling classes. And a lot of the coaches would emphasize that we focus so much on the hands, but the hands come in last. It's more like your head and your positioning is what's going to steer the takedown. And then you just use your hands to complete it. But the rest of us, we want it to be easy. So we just try to grab with our hands first and think that'll be enough. To your point, it's the other way. It's not hands first, it's positioning first. I never thought of it that way, but I like that. I think I'm going to steal that. <laughs> <laughs> so then even with a poor setup, you could grab their legs. But if you have the proper setup where you fake them out, then you have strong positioning, which is more important than being able to touch their legs. Yeah. And so you're saying that maybe mechanically... Oliveira isn't the best at performing the technique of a takedown, but he sets it up so well, his body is in a great position to finish it anyway. Yeah, and then from there, all he has to do is commit to the finish. Because it's something that we didn't used to see in Do Bronx in the past. A lot of times in the past, he would go for a takedown and 95% of the time, he wouldn't succeed, but he would just use the takedown to just get a hold of them and then fall back to guard and then from there try to use his jujitsu, which is, I think, part of the reason why he had such a spotty 50-50 record for a while, because he would fall back while entangling you and then he would either submit you or he would get pounded out and finished. Whereas now, you don't really see him do that too much anymore. Now, when he grabs a hold of you, it seems like his go-to is like a body lock takedown. But when he gets a hold of you, he's no longer looking to pull guard. I think he's open to the idea of pulling guard, but he is now committed to try to take you down. Yeah, I agree with that. What are your thoughts on Michael Chandler? Michael Chandler, I, mean, I actually know a lot of people who have that, oh, who are built like Michael Chandler, just short, stocky. Just, sometimes I hear uh, people saying about that build, call it built like a fire hydrant. So we, it's even more important for someone like Chandler to not get overextended looking for takedowns. And uh, what I really... Uh, like from him is uh, when he's he level changes. Um, sometimes it's just throwing a jab to the body, but it could just as easily be a takedown attempt. It's, it's such a similar motion that it could plausibly be either one. It's a simple game and one that, for the most part, works. Now, 
In his last several fights, even in Bellator, we haven't even seen him do a takedown, but he's constantly threatening it. Now, one of the things I've seen is that wrestlers, if it's been around 10 years of doing MMA and they've already wrestled for their whole lives, their body just starts falling apart and they're forced to become a striker because they just can't shoot takedowns anymore. Anecdotally, uh, for me, I I graduated college four years ago. I'm nowhere near the level of physically shot that some of these guys who are older than me are. Where, uh, but you know, sometimes my back gets a little achy if um, after a day of hard wrestling, or maybe my neck will be a little sore. So, forces me to be a lot more selective with the shots that I take in practice. Because a lot of wrestling coaches call it call it old man wrestling or lazy man wrestling, where generally a little more defensive. Maybe you're um, attacking more upright, like, um, the way that I wrestled now compared to how I attacked in high school and college looks a lot more like Greco compared to, to folk style. So more upright, more upper body clinching. Yeah. This point is just a pain in the butt for me to keep bending over so much. That's a good point about shot selection is because a lot of these fighters, when you see them in their first few years, the way they beat everybody was they were spamming takedowns. And then as they get older, I don't know if it's so much that they got wiser or it's their inability now to spam takedown. So they have to be so much more selective because you see the level change that Michael Chandler does where he is on an opponent and you're like, why isn't he going for the takedown? And it makes me wonder, he's waiting for that perfect shot before he does a takedown. Yeah, that sounds about right. What did you think about that takedown though Bronx did on Chandler? when Chandler had him hurt, because I was surprised that he was able to get that from that position, especially when he was so rocked. Going into the fight, I didn't think it would be crazy to think that Oliveira might take him down, but but to see it actually happen, I wasn't expecting it. I don't think Chandler was expecting it, especially in that position. And a lot of guys who, who panic wrestle when they're rocked, the problem with panic wrestling is really the problem with panic anything. You when people panic, they make mistakes they wouldn't ordinarily make, but Oliver kept composure even when he was hurt. He did a wrestling shot that isn't traditional. It reminded me of old school fighter Carlos Newton, which is that he would wait for you to rush him with punches. And instead of doing a penetration step, he would just basically just squat down. That's what it kind of reminded me of is as Chandler came forward, he just ducked down and just grabbed him and put Chandler on his ass. And I was kind of surprised that Chandler didn't have the hip strength to just fight him off. Chandler might've overcommitted a little bit there. Um, trying to finish him where he had his way too far forward. Yeah. And actually, um, earlier today I was watching, um, Habib Poirier and Poirier looked like he had Habib hurt a little bit, but he, he didn't try to, you know, rush. I got to finish, got to finish, got to finish. Cause Again, he was aware you overcommit on your feet. That opens you up to a takedown. And Chandler, I mean, it's possible he was thinking like, oh, I, I wrestled D1. There's no way this guy's going to take me down. I don't have to worry about it. Which, if that's how he was thinking, it obviously turned out to be a mistake. So the way you sometimes end up shifting your weight when you're striking or going for punches is different from the way you have to have your weight centered for wrestling, right? Yeah. So where do you ideally want to have your weight when you're wrestling so that you could 
be both offensive and defensive? I like to keep my weight mostly on the balls of my feet. Um, sometimes you see people, you know, planting their feet to throw a punch and that's where they end up in trouble because now when you shoot, you can just force all their weight back onto their heels. There's not a whole lot they can do unless they can scramble after the fact. Don't you also want your feet to be square, especially when you're trying to be defensive, which would be a no-no in MMA? Generally, yes, though. Sometimes you can just intentionally throw one foot like way further out than you would think. And you really only have to worry about defending that one leg. But yeah, generally, um, a square stance is considered more defensive and a staggered stance is considered more offensive. Something I said in the preview was that Chandler and Do Bronx are each other's worst style matchups. And I think we all saw that in the fight. Michael Chandler, as predicted, was able to push Do Bronx back towards the cage with his power and hurt him with body shots and punches. And I think also the level changes, just like it did on Dan Hooker, scared them for the takedown. And I think they were also trying to back away from the takedown threat as well. Do Bronx also marched forward and punished Michael Chandler because Chandler's pressure style and style of shifting dictates that he must lean forward, especially with his head in front of his body, which to your point would be bad to defend takedowns because you're so far forward over your feet. And so I thought that was going to be a bad clash where either one can use that to defeat the other. What I noticed about Chandler was that Chandler left himself in line for a counter by not mixing in wrestling shots, but level changing and just coming back. So he would level change where it could be a body shot or it could be a shot and then come back upright, right? Instead of keep going forward or doing something else with that. Then when he comes back up, his head comes back up in line to get countered. And once you see that that's the look Chandler gives, once you've seen that a few times, you know where, he's, where his head's going to be. So then you can start to time that. And then Doe Bronx also got caught in round one. And I think part of that is because of his poor eyesight. He wears super, super thick glasses. So I wonder how bad his eyes are. And part of it isn't that he's not defensively sound, but just that he can't see the punches. And I wonder if that's part of why he fights in so close, because he needs to feel their punches bouncing off his shoulders or his body. And also why he's committed so much to clinching and wrestling because he needs to feel that tactile connection to better understand where his opponents are. Wrestling actually is one sport that that um, that blind people can participate in with with very few adjustments. Yeah, it's common, especially uh, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, to roll with your eyes closed. That's not that weird of a thing because you don't really need to see your opponent because you're already on the ground. They're not going to back up and disengage. You can feel where they are. So I've known a lot of really good blind BJJ grapplers and even like other forms of grappling. But going back to wrestling then, another difference between the two is that though Bronx got hurt in round one and nearly finished, but he survived. Chandler in round two got hurt, but he got finished. And I think the difference is that though Bronx, when rocked, instinctively, pulled guard to survive. I don't even know if it's a conscious decision. It's just the way it's been drilled into him. And it's very rare to see wrestlers do that when they're hurt. And I was talking about this on Twitter as well. 
I think consciously, if you told Chandler or Dominic Cruz or TJ Delashaw, all these people who get finished Cody Garbrandt from their hands and knees, like in a turtle position, intellectually, if you gave them the option to pull guard to survive, they would be like, yeah, I will pull guard. But I think when they're that rocked, they're just on autopilot. And it's hard, I think, for wrestlers to pull guard because you've never been trained to basically pin yourself, right? So how much of wrestling then is just instinctive to just try to get back up, build your base, get to referee's position? Yeah, once once you've been wrestling long enough, it it just becomes an instinctive thing. In wrestling, we're, we're taught that, and that bottom's a defensive position. Actually, in between periods, if you select, when, if a wrestler selects bottom, the ref will announce, you know, green chooses defense. Because in, in wrestling, in wrestling, bottom is considered to be defensive. You, and yeah, there's people who are out there who can do some cool kind of, uh, stuff from bottom where they, you know, reverse someone to their back and pin them from there. But broadly speaking, wrestlers are taught that the, that the goal of bottom is to just is to just get out of dodge. Can you imagine a wrestler who converts to MMA, but they've been wrestling since they were a kid, all throughout college, and then fighting MMA? How hard would it be to train them now to build a new habit where when they're rocked to pull guard? Maybe earlier in Chandler's career, it could have been done, but it's really hard to teach an old dog new tricks. And the older the dog gets, the harder teaching him new tricks gets. Jason Sargas said that it's easy to fix a mistake because a mistake isn't something that was based on autopilot. It was just an intellectual error, but it's really hard to change a habit because that's something they do unconsciously, especially the older they get. Now, watching this fight, something that gives me pause for both fighters is their fragility. Chandler still seems vulnerable to low kicks. We saw that right away in the fight where I think the first kick to the calf knocked Chandler onto the ground. And he's had that problem in previous fights. It's like his legs just aren't built to take them. Now with Dobronx, he can recover well from almost getting finished, getting hurt. But he still showed that a lot of that criticism about him possibly getting finished by pressure and power was still very much grounded because he almost did. And so now as champion, he is better able to recover, but that fragility still seems to be there. After the fight, Doe Bronx gave a shout out to the favelas. This was a stark contrast to Benil Dariush, who shouted out capitalism and Elon Musk. I want to dedicate this fight to all the people who've been hurt by Marxist ideologies. There are millions of you, and I know it, and uh, it's just a fight. I know it's not much, but I want you to know that I love you, and I understand the pain. I don't completely understand, but I love you, and I, I understand your pain. And finally, I want to call somebody out. Joe, I want to call out your buddy, Elon, Elon Musk. Where's my wife's car, bro? I've been waiting six months. I've had the baby. I need a good car. I need, I gotta protect my daughter. Let's go, Elon. Get me my car. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, 
and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you will help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. He also said in the pre-fight media scrum that racism doesn't exist when Tony Ferguson was talking about white privilege or Dana white privilege doing a play on words. Bro, Canelo is one of the highest paid athletes because he's Mexican. Mexican. And it's like, I was born in Iran, a certain American, living in America. Like, there's no issue. Like, quit making it about race. Quit trying to get, quit trying to find something to complain about. Just just show up and fight. Now in the fight, Dariush defeated Ferguson 30-27 in all of the judges' cards in a mostly grappling affair. Now, what did you think of Dariush's performance? Dariush is another, um, his takedowns are simple and maybe the shot itself isn't mechanically great, but he sets it up well, commits to the finish. And I think it also helped a little bit that Tony Ferguson's a guy who's a little more content to work off his back. So if you're in on his legs, deep on a shot, Tony doesn't really feel like he's in danger, which... That could be a bit of a double-edged sword where um, maybe he's a little too comfortable off his back. Now tell us about Ferguson's wrestling because the commentators for years, especially Joe Rogan, has always hyped up his wrestling, that he's a very high-caliber wrestler. He was a wrestling standout. But was he all of those things or where was his wrestling at, even at his prime? Um, Like the same same thing I uh, told you about with um, Tom Lawler. Tony Ferguson and Tom Lawler uh, competed in what's called NCWA for National College Wrestling Association. The difference between NCWA and NCAA or NAIA, it's like the difference between a college's club soccer team and the varsity team where on the club team, yeah, maybe you, um, there's some athletes on there who are pretty good, maybe even varsity level, but on the whole, it's, it's more of a casual thing. And which I think it is great. I absolutely give people that that outlet for people who can't or don't want to do the rigors of the NCAA. But it's it's not the same, especially because of his last performance versus Oliveira. I think Tony would have thought I need to keep this off the ground. Even his corner was saying that after the first round to keep it standing, but he wasn't able to do that. So I don't think he wanted to be on the ground for this fight. What could Ferguson have done to prevent some of the takedowns or to get back up? You know, off his off his back, he's spent a lot of time in rubber guard, which I mean, the rubber guard is, has has its purposes. Made it a little harder for Darius to pass, a little harder for him to to strike. But almost felt he was kind of strapping himself into that position where like. His position wasn't getting markedly worse, but it also wasn't getting markedly better either. Yeah, he was married to the position. Basically, he's tying Darius to him and he's tied to Darius, so they're not going anywhere. And, and that's the opposite of what you want if you want to get out of there. You, you, want, you want more movement. You want to be able to separate your hips from the top guy's hips because the more space you have between your hips and, their, and the top fighter's hips, easier it's going to be to get out. And you create that space by just 
keep moving, 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 which ties back into chain wrestling. Now, what about when Darius was getting in on him, getting the clinch? It wasn't like he immediately got the takedown. So what could Ferguson have done to break him off or to just prevent the takedown altogether? You know, I, I think having a little more distance could have helped. I mean, it, yeah, Tony's not necessarily averse to fighting in close, but the closer you are, easier it becomes to clinch with you. And somebody's keeps taking you down from the clinch. Even if you yourself like the clinch, why would you want to be there if you if you're not winning that position? So that's a good point. Like if they just did pure wrestling with no strikes, even with his club level wrestling, I would even argue that maybe his wrestling got better since club level because MMA fighters have to do so much wrestling and he probably has had the opportunity to train with even better wrestling coaches than he had in high school or college, right? Yeah. So probably he's improved this wrestling. So if they did a pure wrestling match, probably Tony could beat him. Probably he could also beat Charles Oliveira. Yeah. But to your point then, maybe the problem isn't that he's a worse wrestler than them. It's that the way he's striking, so it's the non-wrestling aspect, puts him in a bad position to defensively wrestle, to defend takedowns. So I think maybe that wild style doesn't do much for creating distance because he's spinning, he's doing all these things where he wants you to come towards him and get close where he could club you with something you're not expecting, right? But that also means that you could get close enough to just grab him. And I think those unorthodox movements then don't put his hips in a good position to prevent takedowns. Yeah, actually, um, what Ed Gallo likes to say is that wrestling-wise, almost any, almost any of it can work in MMA, but it's about what's your plan to make it work. One of the things that I saw with Dariush was that he had these like weird gimme takedown positions. And I was surprised that he wasn't able to just get the takedown even faster. But these gimme positions are like where they're exchanging and then Tony would do something weird where he would like kind of spin or they would get off angle off of each other because of one of his wild movements. And so Tony would be like almost have his back to Darius because he missed on his kick or he missed on a spinning elbow or spinning back fist or whatever. Right. So then he has his back exposed and Darius just runs in and tries to grab him. And then from there, he has to work the takedown. But I think a lot of it is that. He just put himself in these weird positions where he was facing away from Dariush. And I think that's all because of the way he's striking and also his footwork, his weird dancing footwork that used to throw everybody off where he's spinning and doing pirouettes and doing tango and salsa. (laughs) I don't know if that's the best footwork to prevent takedowns. And that's part of the problem with um, relying on an unorthodox style where Yes, maybe he's starting to decline a little bit because he's far from young. But when you're unorthodox, it makes you really hard to prepare for. But after you've been figured out a couple of times, now future opponents have a blueprint for you. And his main takedown defense that he even brags about was he's really good at preventing just like a typical lower your level and shoot for a blast double because then he could try to do his snap down series, right? Yeah, I... Actually, I um, I like that you brought up the snapdowns. I think that's something that's a little underutilized in MMA, both offensively and defensively. How do you mean? Defensively, I, I teach that the lines of defense are head, hands, hips, legs, and then 
scrambling as a as a last resort. And sometimes it can be harder to use your hands defensively uh, for wrestling in MMA because uh, most people fight with their hands up as opposed to uh, opposed to down lower. But if your hands are a little lower, you can meet the shooter's head. And the advantage to the lines of defense is if he beats your head, usually with a level change, you still have your hands. If he's beating your hands, you, you still have your hips, uh, which usually means a sprawl. And then if, and then if he beats your sprawl, then you have your scrambling. But if you're not even making him have to beat your hands, then you've already taken away one of your lines of defense for him. And offensively, if somebody is trying to snap your head into the ground and you don't want your head snapped into the ground, there's going to come a point where you're going to force your head back up. And when your head is forced back up, there's an opportunity for the attacker to level change, shoot while you're trying to recover position. What is the best way then to fight off a snap down or a front headlock? So a lot of people who end up getting stuck in that front head, this comes back to just because the leg's close doesn't mean it's there for you. They're either reaching forward, trying to drive, 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 being real stubborn. Yeah, trying to get a single leg. You see that a lot. So that's really, really hard to do when somebody's pressure, uh, pressure, uh, got the right pressure on the front head. So what's a little easier to do and would be a little higher percentage would be first, um, attacking his hands. Um, most wrestlers are taught if they have a front head on you, first orders of business are get off your knees and attack the hand on the chin. Usually from there, you'd want to just circle back up to your feet and start from scratch because a neutral position is better than a bad position. I would say 90% of people caught in that position, they drop to their knees to fight it. Yeah. Do you think that's just because it's tiring because you have their weight on top of you and after a while, you're just like, um, let me take a breather? Because I'm sure a wrestling coach will be screaming at them not to do that. My high school coach used to always yell in the room, one knee good, two knees bad. Would that be considered like lazy wrestling? Yeah. Um, you never want to be, you know, resting on two knees. The, the, the time to rest is when you're in control. If you're the guy who's holding the front head, sure, you, you can wrestle there for a few seconds if you need. But if, if you're the one in bad position, no, that's not the time to rest. That's, that's the time to be even more urgent. What's the difference between a front headlock and let's say a guillotine generally um i have two ways that i attack the, uh with a front head one is a little more uh traditional i have one hand on on their chin and one hand on their arm kind of just above the elbow so kind of clasping their chin and clasping behind their elbow in a similar fashion right yeah and so there my hand would not be locked and the other way i do is I actually will lock my hands sometimes kind of up by the armpit. Oh, so instead of being more towards their neck, your hands are clasped closer to their armpit? Yeah, but I'm still keeping my pressure real heavy on um, right on the base of their neck, the, the back of their neck. So they end up kind of stuck there. So the way it's different from then a guillotine would be that their head wouldn't be under your armpit per se. It would be more like their head would be more under your body and your body is forcing their head down. Yeah, it, for me, in a perfect world, if I have somebody in a front head, 
their face is almost touching the mat, if not actually touching it. And that kind of kills the space to finish the guillotine. I think that is one way that fighters have been able to cheat and get a takedown on somebody is they will force their head into a guillotine position, basically telling you, guillotine me, choke me out. And then when the uh, opponent does try to guillotine you, that's when they get the takedown. And they still keep looking for the guillotine. Because a lot of times then they use that armpit underneath their head to use to lift them up, right? And then slam them. Yeah, be, um, that's kind of the difference between trying to attack the guillotine versus, you know, trying to do more conventional pressing defense of, you know, stuff in the head. That and sprawling are probably the two most important parts of defending a shot. And it seems like most fighters, even if their sprawl is not great, they know to sprawl. But I rarely see fighters also trying to stuff the shooter's head down to the mat. So what do you mean by stuffing the head then? Uh, by stuffing the head, I mean kind of forcing it down. Generally speaking, where the head goes, the body's going to follow. So, And forcing it down, you mean like with my own chest on the back of their head? Could be with your chest, with your hips. Could be with your hands if you have a free hand. Is the more weight you put on their head, on the back of their head, harder it's going to be for them to to finish the takedown. Is comes back to to being in good position. That's uh, that head up is one of the more, most important parts of good body position. So you can break that down. Then the rest of what used to be good body position is going to start to break down a little bit. Something you said earlier might be a good example of how Tony Ferguson doesn't even rely on all the fundamentals of wrestling, which is that you said you want to scramble as a last resort. And I think Tony, while you're taking him down, he's going to try to scramble. He's going to try to outscramble you. It's just almost like he's okay with you causing that reaction, that chain wrestling reaction is because he's going to try to scramble and mostly try to Gramby roll out. That's something Justin Gaethje did even at a very high level. But let's say I'm a high school kid, I'm wrestling, and instead of relying on sprawls or fighting the hands or any of the other stuff, I just go straight to scrambles, straight to grabby rolls. What would you tell me? I would tell you the lines of defense, head, hands, hips, sprawling. And I would say, hey, if you, if you can scramble, then that's great. It's there when we need it. But let's not need it so much because if your scrambling doesn't work, there's no fallback option after that. So if you, if you beat my head, I still have my hands. You beat my hands, I still have my sprawl. You beat my sprawl, then I scramble. So it's like layers of wrestling. Yeah. I think this is an example of then how Tony Ferguson, because he was so agile and athletic, he was able to get away with just scrambling for so long. But then as he got older and his body wasn't the same body that it used to be, his lack of basics and fundamentals in both striking and wrestling are starting to reveal itself. Yeah, and had he developed his uh, fundamentals at a younger age, yeah, maybe he would have been a little more predictable and taken some, uh, some more losses early on, but I think he would have more longevity. I think what we would consider his prime would be a little bit of a bigger window, but it might be a little bit too late for him to add those in. And, but if, if he can find a way to make the adjustment, and that would be awesome. But it's going to be r really hard, I think, to teach those fundamentals at this stage in the game for him. What about somebody like Justin Gaethje, who also relied a lot on scrambles and Grammy rolls to defend takedowns? And actually, um, 
going into the Habib fight, I had read an interview that Gaethje did where where he felt like he said he felt like the scrambling would would be an advantage because in freestyle wrestling you get you get penalized for exposing your back even if it's for a split second that that's two points for your opponent whereas in folk style you have a little more time to to work from there so so you see um some more rolling across your back type stuff in in folk style but he said something like there's no scrambling in freestyle because of the the uh the difference in rules and that's when i had a bad feeling for him because that's just not true so how is that not true you know some of the the scrambling in freestyle is it's fantastic it just looks a little different because again you don't want to expose your your back to the mat but there's absolutely still scrambling and then when we got to the fight we didn't see any scrambles yeah, I think he would have had a little more success if he did commit to a more fundamental defense. So, I mean, as we we've seen, committing to fundamental defense is still far from a guarantee if you're fighting Habib. But maybe those takedowns would have been a lot more difficult. Next, we have the action-packed fight between Esten Barboza and Shane Burgos. It was a competitive fight with Barboza winning by knockout in the third round. Now, I think you told me that you didn't have a chance to watch this fight. So let me give my thoughts about what I saw in this fight. First off, what was interesting to me was that once Edson Barboza left MMA boxing coach Mark Henry, did we really see an improvement in his boxing? And it's something American Top Team has been able to do with other fighters, even though they're not known as a boxing gym. One of the best things they're good at is having fighters jab and build off their jab. And that's what we saw Barboza do, not only in this fight, but since he's been at American Top Team. Building off his jab, but also now exchanging and winning in the pocket. I think the best example of that that we've seen thus far is in this fight. And his counter right in between exchanges is something we've never seen him use before, but in this fight, it was perfect. Also, chins don't get miraculously better, but he's much better at taking punches. So it's not that his chin turned into granite, but it, it goes back to his improvements in his boxing. He's now rolling with the shots. And secondly, he sees the shots coming, whereas before he seemed to be taken by surprise. I don't know if he's doing more boxing, sparring or whatnot, but he's better able to see those things coming. He's also not relying just on his switch kicks or wheel kicks, but a variety of kicks and attacking with punches and kicks all up and down the body. So it ended up being too much variety for Burgos to deal with. We also saw some of what Jason Sargas mentioned in regards to footwork, which is to step slightly off to the right after exchanges, or to use it to get the opponent to reset. He still has problems going to his left, however, which Burgos didn't capitalize on, and I think that's what people thought he would capitalize on, is he would catch him with one of his hooks. Burgos definitely did have his moments, but he didn't do enough off of his jab. He would throw the jab and catch Barboza, but he would let him off the hook. And whenever Barboza got near the cage because Burgos was pressuring him, again, he let him escape. I think fans expected Burgos to rise to another level in this fight to become a contender, but it appears this is his current ceiling for now, and he's that fun mid-card action fighter. That knockout, though, does make me wonder about the health of his brain because the brain is designed to instantly shut off 
to protect the self and delayed reactions therefore aren't good. So I wonder, have all the wars and punches he's taken already caught up to him this early in his career? Because so much of why he was the favorite going into this fight was that he had an indestructible chin. But why he has that reputation is because we've seen him take so many hellacious shots already. And that's just in the UFC, not counting the fights he's had prior. But now let's look ahead to the bantamweight fight between Rob Font and Cody Garbrandt. Garbrandt hasn't fought since he had COVID and long-term symptoms from COVID. He was supposed to move down to flyweight, but I think because of his health issues, he's fighting back at bantamweight. But he has a tough comeback fight in Font, who's been right at the door of contendership three times, but then got derailed by Lineker, Munoz, and Azunzao. But since Azunzao, he's only looked better and better finishing former title challenger Marlon Moraes in December of 2020. On the flip side, Garbrandt was on a three-fight losing streak until he knocked out Azunzao in June of 2020. Now, neither one of these guys are really known for their wrestling, though actually Garbrandt does have some wrestling credentials, especially, I think, at the state level. Do you have any thoughts about this fight? Well, uh, Font seems a little more willing to, to wrestle than Garbrandt is, but Font does make quite a few mistakes while he's wrestling. Defensively, uh, he'll sometimes reach over the back of uh, the shooter's head, which and fine if a guillotine is what you want there, but if you're just kind of wrapping around his head there and not committing to the guillotine, then kind of just taking away one of your hands for him kind of done him a favor and there are some kind of flashier ways to defend takedowns like that that a lot of times at the high school level we kind of have to uh train those out of our uh, our freshmen who were maybe winning with those at the middle school level but when they do it at the high school level where they wrap around the head and then try to whip them over one way or the other what they've done most of the time is just make the shot easier to finish. Again, back to uh, getting away from fundamentals. Larry Garbrandt, even though he doesn't really wrestle much in his fights, I would actually like to see him wrestle a bit in this fight. Because Font is a guy who can be taken down. And Garbrandt, I mean, once you've been in some wars, the more you've, the more your chin's been tested, that's when your chin starts to erode, the more you prove it. Actually, uh, Garbrandt also took Dominic Cruz down. Yeah, the, the wrestling's there. So I think Cody's a crazy person if he doesn't at least try to wrestle. But this is also Cody Garbrandt we're talking about. So, yeah. I think he also did attempt some takedowns against Azunzao. So it definitely seems like a part of his game he's trying to either add or bring back. Yeah, and despite... Even though Font is older than Garbrandt and and has had more fights, it I almost get the feeling like Garbrandt is being set up to be a stepping stone for Font. Whereas Garbrandt seems like, even though he won his most recent fight, he's probably on on the back end of his career, in all likelihood. Where Font seems uh, seems like he's still got some upward trajectory left in him. Going back to what you said about wrapping the head. I wonder if that comes from MMA sparring where you're sparring with headgear on a lot of times, especially when you're working more takedowns. You see people 
constantly wrap the head just because the headgear prevents them from being able to pull their head out. And it becomes such a better handle that you're able to just like snap them down, right? <laughs> Even with gloves on, it becomes really easy where you can whip them around like you can in middle school wrestling. I think also like when you're tired, you use that to stall them out a little bit and recover. I think it's a habit you create just from that style of sparring. And then you carry it into MMA, not even realizing where you got it from, but then it ends up being a bad habit when they don't have headgear on. That's an excellent point. I mean, obviously, like, yes, wear your headgear, but that's, that's something that fighters should probably be a little more cognizant of in training. That sometimes the conditions that you see in training don't match the conditions you see in competition. I mean, imagine if you had your kids all wrestling that MMA but they were just going to do their normal wrestling, but made them all wear boxing headgear. How many more head and arm throws and how many more, you know, bad habits would you see? Yeah, it would make a huge difference. Because even after the headgears stripped away, like, that's just how you've been training. We don't consider wrestling a sport where you're going to get concussions or there's any head damage. But is this true? Or do wrestlers also know about concussions and getting dinged and, uh, getting buzzed in matches because I have a couple of friends who've had severe concussions while wrestling. Uh, yeah, that absolutely happens in wrestling. Um, a lot of times you, um, you end up like with these like accidental headbutts just coming in head to head when you're tied up. And what I've read all, on a lot of, uh, the brain damage stuff is it's those sub concussive blows that are, are actually the most harmful because those aren't the ones that make you sit at, that make you realize, hey, I got to sit out. So you just keep absorbing uh, that same shock to the head without thinking twice about it. Is it mostly just from head-to-head collisions or is it also from like the way you're taken down or the way you're thrown could also keep jarring your head? Yeah, that happens sometimes. Like um, one time in, uh, in college, um, when I got taken down, my head hit the mat and like I never got formally diagnosed with a concussion though maybe I should have at least gone into concussion protocol because as soon as my head made contact, something just felt a little off for an hour or so after. And also when you're wrestling, you're cutting weight. So you're not even in a good position to be taking headshots. Yeah. And when, you're, when your brain's a little, even a little bit dehydrated, that makes a big difference health-wise. I remember in a high school wrestling tournament, I saw somebody get basically suplexed and then the dude was knocked out. I think he got disqualified because you're not allowed to do suplexes, right? In the high school level. Yeah, no, that that would get called for a slam, an illegal slam. And we've even seen that in MMA where people have used suplexes like Dan Severn and used it to knock his opponents out. So the way you're coming down, crashing onto the mat also can be a source of brain damage. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, a long time ago, like like the 1950s, slams were still legal in college wrestling but then there was this um wrestler named bill cole who was a three-time national champ for northern iowa and his big thing was he would slam people on their head and then you would pin them while they were knocked out (laughs) and so that then after he graduated people started realizing like hey maybe this shouldn't be possible to win this way wasn't there also back in those times, like, you know, certain types of near submission types of moves were illegal. So you can't tap out in wrestling 
but it's like you would put them in a choke. This is what old timers have told me, where you nearly like choke them out, and then that's when you pin them. Yeah, actually, um, the Schultz brothers, uh, Dave and Mark Schultz, who were Olympic champions back in 84, they used to do this you'd choke from the front headlock, and then they would just turn you over and pin you while you were out from the choke. <laughs> and like the refs knew to watch them like a hawk, and they still did it. Yeah, there's old grappling videos of them too, putting people to sleep. And I think one of them did MMA and also did one of the Gracie challenges. And that was that was Mark Schultz. And I think there's an old story. I don't know if there's a video of it or not, but that he put Hickson to sleep. So wow. we don't put those people on pedestals here. So we talk about that stuff, but uh, it's taboo. <laughs> <laughs> there was also, I forgot about this, but remember there was a point where Oliveira was on Chandler's back trying to do a choke and then Chandler jumped and tried to slam him and I don't know maybe try to knock him out or something do you remember this point yeah I, when it happened in real time I didn't even realize Olivera's head hit the ground I thought like oh what was Chandler thinking he just strapped himself in tighter but in, and then when I saw the replays like oh that maybe kind of hurt yeah because he didn't get out immediately but he did eventually get out after that point oh and yeah, it can even for a split second now you're you're thinking about kind of recovering to safety or yeah, and even just that uh, motion and that could have loosened up a little bit of space between Chandler's hips and Oliveira's hips. So then one thing we don't consider is with wrestlers coming into MMA because they aren't strikers, they're not boxers, they're not Muay Thai fighters. We assume they're coming into MMA with a perfectly healthy brain, right? But that might not actually be the case. And that might be actually part of their wear and tear to their brain before they even got into MMA because of years of dehydration and years of accidentally getting headbutted when they're wrestling and getting slammed. Yeah, I agree with that. All right, Zach, this was fun. I learned a lot about you. I learned a lot about wrestling. I learned a lot about wrestling in MMA. Great. Thanks for having me. Tell us where people can find you. Uh, my Twitter is at Golja Boy Tellum. And uh, on Instagram, I'm at cranked at Golja Boy. <laughs> All right. I'll put that in the show notes. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Sam. So I, I got a men's conference next week. So and then right away, I got to go there for a couple of days, see all my kids and then come back. Um, I, I've already gone there twice since. So it's it's going great. We're, we're raising these uh, boys and girls to be just devout, solid Christians who are going to change the culture in that country. South Pauls, hitting with the left. South Pauls, Sam, Paul, South Paul, South Paul.